Hello, you're listening to a special episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Today, we're hearing from someone who isn't a scientist, but who has lived through the experience of translating theory into practice. In a previous show, we spoke to pediatrician Tim Yu about his pioneering N of 1 trial, where he made a medicine for one person only, a young girl named Mila. He used his background as a geneticist to treat her rare form of Batten's disease. This is a neurodegenerative disorder leading to loss of function and seizures in children. The drug Tim Yu's lab developed was adapted from a brand new drug called Spinraza, which was very early in its development. From this, he created a genetic therapy just for Mila called Milasim. She received her first dose a year after they met. Over that first six months, um, as we tracked her seizures, we were hugely gratified to see that her seizures actually began to respond. They actually began to shorten and they began to, uh, to drop in frequency. And um, by the end of the six months, she, her 30 seizures had declined to uh, between zero and 10 seizures per day, often really more typically zero and five seizures per day. They had gone from lasting greater than a minute to being incredibly fleeting, just really lasting just a few seconds at a time. And uh, we were, uh, well, stunned, I think. We, no one expected a response like that. We were thrilled to see this happening. And it was a, a sign that she was uh, responding. Mila's mother, Julia Vitarello, joins us today for this special episode to tell her and Mila's story of this pioneering genetic treatment and what it means for the many millions of other children in the world with rare genetic disorders. It's a chance for us as scientists to start to more fully understand the human impact of a disease like Batten's and what happens when the hard work in the lab translates into hope for an individual child. Julia, thanks so much for joining us today on Theory and Practice. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Um, So to kick it off, one of the things I think would be great is to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better as a person. And I remember one of the stories you told me the first time we met was uh, about your days in your youth living in Italy, working in the motorcycle business. Maybe why don't we start there? Yeah, prior to my life, facing rare disease and kind of entering this world of medicine and research, I had graduated from college with a degree in (laughs) liberal arts, um, political science from Amherst College, and decided that the best use of my degree was to move to Italy and work in a motorcycle factory. So uh, I took a little bit of a a different turn than uh, what was expected and ended up moving to Bologna in Italy and working for the Ducati Motorcycle Um, headquarters and worked there for about five or six years where, you know, I got a chance to experience an entirely different life. And uh, I learned a lot actually about communications and marketing. Um, It was relative to the motorcycle industry and and sports and went on to do something similar with the Olympic committee during the Torino winter games, also in Italy. But, you know, a lot of what I learned there (laughs) ended up being incredibly helpful for me. Um, who would have known that I would have had to use those skills, you know, to fight for my daughter's life years later. 
I mean, maybe say a little bit more about that. What were some of the concrete lessons you learned about working with other people, about being able to communicate, being able to inspire? Yeah, when I worked at uh, Ducati, I I had the opportunity to work with people across about 60 countries. And I was able to work with everyone from CEOs down to the dealers. I worked with um, a team of people to create the corporate advertising and marketing campaigns and brand uh, strategy. And it was not just uh, you know for Italy where I was working, but it was something that had to translate across many countries and many cultures. And I was able to kind of learn all of the different points of view relative to that sector, which was motorcycling, and learn about the dealer's point of view, learn about the owner's point of view, learn about um, the kind of C-level point of view of running the company. So you know, it was a really unique opportunity to learn about how to create a brand, how to translate it across uh, very different cultures in different countries, in different languages uh, that were all quite different, but create one very cohesive story that was very real because the Ducati factory was, um, is something that's, it's, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's kind of deeply rooted in Italian history and it's been around for decades and lived through wars. And, and so kind of telling that story and turning it into a a modern day story and image that would sell motorcycles was, you know, totally new to me. I didn't know anything about that. Um, but it, it did give me a really interesting opportunity that was certainly not what I expected to be using my political science degree on, but ended up being um, hugely informative and helpful for me. So maybe let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago uh, with Tim Yu, our guest on the show, your daughter, Mila, was the first person to undergo an end of one trial for a rare disease. Um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about Mila's early childhood? What was she like? And then also, when did she first come to medical attention? Yeah, when Mila was born, I, I really had no red flags at any pediatric visits. Um, she had a little reflux that was kind of normal. Other than that, um, it was pretty, you know, smooth sailing. Uh, she was really like any other kid. In fact, um, from a pretty early age, she was quite advanced in certain areas. She was rock climbing. You know, I, we, we live in Boulder, Colorado, so good little Colorado outdoors girl, you know, was, she was rock climbing up walls that were like 40 feet tall with her little rock climbing gear on, you know, when she was one and a half, she was hiking for hours on end by the time she was one and a half or two. When she was two, we took her to Moab, which was this pretty intense, um, pretty intense hike in a national park. And she was able to hike the entire day, every day. Um, she was quite little and everyone looked down at her with her tiny little hiking boots on and her little pink outfit, you know, and she was hiking, you know, under the sun for three, four hours at a time. Uh, she was very verbally advanced. She, she didn't have any hair until she was like three. And so everyone thought she was this tiny little baby and, and she would just speak in these elaborate sentences and she would sing all the words to all the songs. Um, and she was very outgoing. So when I brought her to the playground, if I happened to talk with a friend nearby, a stranger would come up to me and be like, I just met your daughter. She just told me everything about your life. And she is so outgoing. Wow. What a great little girl. She ate all of our snacks and all of our lunch. Um, and so, um, my kids don't have any snacks now, but that's okay. Cause she was so interesting. You know, I, I had to bring snacks to give other kids at the playground cause she would eat all of them and from everyone else, but she was just incredibly outgoing and really just, um, verbal. 
And then, you know, around three and a half, four years old, uh, I noticed that things were a little bit off. Everyone else told me I was kind of crazy because she had, was so advanced. And, and it started out with tripping. And I just noted, gosh, you know, my, my daughter's covered in bruises. And I remember my mom saying, it's okay, she's just clumsy. And I, I distinctly remember that comment because I was thinking, Mila has been so coordinated. She climbs across all of our furniture. She jumps perfectly from one couch to a chair onto a coffee table perfectly. And then from there, you know, onto another little table. And, you know, I just thought that's weird. Why, why would, why would my own mother who knows her so well call her clumsy? And then that started to happen more often um, at school. She had been so outgoing, the center of attention. Um, and I remember at a certain point, her teacher said, you know, Mila just needs some time to calm down. And, and she's off in the corner reading a book um, because she's a little overwhelmed. And I thought she's never been overwhelmed. You know, she's always been the center of attention. Um, and so all these comments started coming in that, that didn't resonate with me. They were not my daughter. And I noticed that something was off. I brought her some doctors. They told me, oh yeah, her interned legs. It's just, you know, that happens and she'll outgrow that. Oh, she's stuttering. She'll outgrow that 25% of children stutter and they outgrow that. It's fine. Maybe she's got some vision problems, but you know, it's kind of early. Let's, let's just see how it pans out here. Um, and so I became increasingly concerned when everyone else was making me feel like it was all going to be okay. And what ended up really sending me down this kind of rabbit hole of, of going to so many different specialists, and I would bring a piece of paper with me that had a list of other neurological symptoms. So if I went to the orthopedic doctor, I would say, hey, just by the way, just for your information, Mila's not only having orthopedic problems, she's also having problems pulling objects in close to her. And she's also stuttering. And when I would go to the stuttering therapist, I would say, hey, you know, by the way, Mila's having vision problems too. You know, and there wasn't, people just didn't know what to do with that information. Um, eventually, by the time between five and six years old, I noticed that people were a little bit more concerned. And I remember the stuttering therapist looking at me and saying, you know, I've been doing this for decades and I've never seen a stutter like this before. This is a little unusual. And then I heard the orthopedic doctor say, you know, I've never really seen this weird pit pattering she's doing with her feet when a loud noise happens. It's very unusual. I've, I've never really seen that before. And, and some of these doctors and therapists would say, well, when I asked what causes this, they say, well, there could be this really, really rare condition that causes this, but, um, but it's so rare, we're not going to bring it up. And so I just ended up hearing that too many times and after a few years, and I think I counted about 100 appointments with doctors and therapists and numerous flights to East and West Coast and Canada and all over the place, I just didn't have an answer, you know, and I, I felt completely lost by the time she was six years old. And so uh, how did you get referred to Dr. Yu? I first ended up at Children's Hospital Colorado when Mila turned six years old soon after her, her sixth birthday. I was crying like every day. And I was like, something has got to be wrong because I don't cry every day. And my, my husband at the time was crying. And I just thought, this is just, we've got to figure out what's going on. Like this, this confusion of years has got to come to an end here. We've got to figure something out here. 
Um, I, I, I was reading books about brain trauma. We had been in a kind of minor car accident. I went down the autism route. You know, I went down all these routes that other families in this diagnostic odyssey end up going down out of desperation. And finally, I just gave up and brought Mila to um, the ER of Children's Hospital Colorado. I just, I, I couldn't take it anymore. Um, I had called a neurologist and said, you know, I'm going to just figure this out with a neurologist. And I called and they're like, okay, you have an appointment in four months. And I just thought, there's no way. And that same day they told me four months, I just packed a duffel bag and went to the ER. And so I ended up there after a week of testing. There was, it was not looking good. You know, I'd been crying the entire week. Mila was getting weaker and weaker, sitting in a hospital bed for a week. And uh, we came out with, hey, we think that there's two possible scenarios. Both of them are not good. Um, one of them is Batten disease. One of them is ataxia telangiectasia, I think was the other one. I can't remember. It was a form of ataxia. And, you know, I just thought, oh, wow, like there's actually a real reason why I'm seeing these symptoms in Mila. And like, it was excitement after just such desperation of years of not being able to figure out if there was an underlying problem. And uh, we got home and about a week later, the genetic test, a week or two weeks later, the genetic test results came back and they showed that Mila um, had Batten CLN7, which was a ultra rare variant of an already rare genetic disease. And it was degenerative and that no child had ever lived. And, you know, I was told that there was really no one working on this disease, that there wasn't much going on. Uh, and there was certainly no you know, hope because there were no trials, there were no drugs, there was nothing. Um, but there was this wrinkle, I guess, in the story, which was that um, I tried to ask as many questions as I could. I knew nothing about genetic disease. I did learn pretty quickly that autosomal recessive meant that you had to receive um, a, a mutation from both mom and dad. And one of them was found and the other one wasn't. And I didn't know much about this, but I did pull up a database online and I saw a database of children with Batten CLN7 and there was a column for one mutation, a column for another. And then there was a third column that uh, said other CL, you know, NCL mutations. And it had about 10% of those children had a mutation in an additional NCL gene. And I didn't know much about this, but I certainly wanted to make sure that if I was going to be going after a gene therapy, that I was going to be going after the right gene. And I was very curious if Mila perhaps had a different type of batten, and then addition had one mutation in the, in the CLN7 or MFSD8 is the other correct name, uh, a gene. And so I went down this rabbit hole really truly because of that third column. And interestingly, just a few weeks ago, I met the uh, researcher who added that third column in and really pushed for having that third column there. So this wouldn't have uh, happened if she hadn't really pushed for that. I also had a two-year-old son, uh, Aslan, who was uh, completely healthy and normal. And um, I, Mila had been perfectly healthy at that age. And I was terrified that he was going to start losing his vision and start tripping and falling. And I needed to be really sure that I had both mutations so that I could test him um, and not just test half, you know, with only the only one mutation we had. Um, I was told at the time, correctly so by Mila's geneticist, that um, it was going to be really hard to find a lab that was going to be able to find this missing mutation. We had gone down the path of getting clinical, um, you know, workup and, and had that, I think at least two labs had looked for the other mutation with no luck, if not three labs. 
Um, and then, then the geneticist also told me, Dr. Larson um, from Children's Colorado also told me that, you know, even if they, something was found, it'd be very hard at that point. This was, you know, the end of 2016. It'd be very hard to figure out whether that mutation was in fact disease causing. And so he was correct. Um, but I also felt like I figured out whole genome sequencing existed at the time. It was $25,000 and it was a five month wait and it was less about the money at that point because I was determined to raise it. It was more about, I can't wait five months. Like my daughter's like losing everything by the month. Um, and so um, I figured out that there was a handful of labs at most that uh, did whole genome sequencing at the time. One of them was at Harvard. I reached, I grew up on the East Coast. So I reached out via Facebook and said, does anyone know anyone at this very specific lab? Can you help me? I got a lot of people saying, yeah, I know some people that work at Harvard Medical School, and but we don't know anyone at that lab. And then through my best friend at Amherst College, who is a doctor in Boston, she reposted my post to a closed group of physician moms in the Boston area. And that landed on Dr. Yu's wife's desk because she is a physician in Boston. And um, within a day, I just very recently, um, just a few weeks ago, went back. I, I have not gone back and looked at that first email exchange with Dr. Yu. And it is amazing. I mean, it's just a series of 20 emails back and forth within a period of days of like, hi, I'm Dr. Yu. I heard your story from you know your friend. I have a lab. Um, a different lab within uh, Boston Children's and you know Harvard related um, that is looking for difficult to find mutations. Um, this is not necessarily my area, but I, I really want to help you be able to test your son. And so, really went down that rabbit hole um, to try to help. And so, tell us what happened next. You saw Doctor Yu, and um, did he do whole genome sequencing? Yeah. So. Within a day of being introduced to him, our email chain kind of exploded. And he's like, you know, I need this information. I need that. Can we get on the phone? I'd really like to help you. And truly, he was, you know, he. I think he saw it as, as a scientific challenge, but really, truly, more than anything, is he just really wanted to help this family that had children that were the same ages as his children. And, you know, he was working with children with rare disease. And he just wanted to help, you know. So we had samples sent from our whole family within days and he was able to do whole genome sequencing. And he, um, what I learned only about a month or two or three, January 2017, we got in touch with him. And by April, he had not only found the missing mutation, um, but he had been able to start down this rabbit hole of like a what if. What if, you know, and Spin Raza at the time was on everyone's mind. And I know that you interviewed Dr. Yu recently, and I'm sure he told you all the details, but, you know, Spin Raza made him come up with this idea of what if we made a Spin Raza like drug just for Mila? Um, and we can't find anyone else out there, so it will just be for her. And so he did a lot of that workup knowing that I had already begun through my foundation, Mila's Miracle Foundation, which I'd started um, when Mila was diagnosed. And I had gone down the gene replacement therapy route. And so he knew that and he didn't want to throw me off. He didn't want to um, have me stop working on that with false hope, you know. Um, so he really waited until he had something concrete. And when we spoke again a few months later, after exchanging a number of emails and texts over the course of those three months, he said, you know, I found out that uh, your son does not carry either of the mutations, which was, you know, 
I mean, I thought motherhood was just going to be ripped from me and I can't actually really put into words. I'm usually pretty good at finding the words and I, I have never been able to find the words to describe that feeling during those three or four months of thinking that I would be a mother in an empty house with no children. Um, and hearing that news from him was, was so bittersweet. It was such an enormous relief just with so much pain in it, just reminding me that Aslan lucked out. He just got, he won the lottery. He didn't get either Batten causing mutation and that no one down the line in his family would ever know anything about Batten except for the story of this, of his sister and Batten wouldn't be carried on. And then Mila, you know, just had bad luck and got both disease causing mutations, you know, so it was a very bittersweet, um, and then Dr. Yu um, and then Dr. Larson, who was Mila's geneticist as well, were on the phone and they kind of paused. And um, Dr. Yu said, you know, I just want to tell you that we have this idea. Um, it's only an idea right now. I want you to continue down the path of your gene therapy for Batten seal and 7 that you're working on. But there's this idea we have and we're going to keep you posted on it. But it, it might possibly offer a different possibility for a treatment. You know, and, and for me, going from having Mila diagnosed just a few months before that, being told that no one was working on this gene, there was little to nothing known about the gene. Um, there were no treatments in the pipeline. There was no foundation. There was, you know, maybe two scientists that knew anything about it. And having numerous scientists uh, tell me that we were, that Batten disease was extremely complicated. I had people from the NIH that I got in touch with through friends of friends and they would say, oh, we're 10 years away from being able to do anything with Batten. So for me to go from 10 years to have three months later, a foundation that's raised, you know, a decent amount of money because I was telling Milo's story towards a gene replacement therapy, and then being told that there might be another option called antisense oligonucleotide, which I could not say, let alone understand, <laughs> um, seemed just impossible to me, you know, too good to be true. So you needed to build a foundation and, and, and raise millions of dollars for the gene therapy that you had planned to use. How did you, how did you go about that? You know, I, I realized early on when I felt just such incredible desperation learning that a gene replacement therapy was going to be an estimated $4 million. And I had a very short time, you know, doing my little calculations on the back of the napkin of, Mila being six years old and looking at other children that were older than her with Batten Seal and Seven, I thought, I have a year. There's no way I have more than a year, uh, if, if that. And I, I remember doing the calculation in my head of how much I had to raise each day. And it was some absurd number of, you know, I don't remember what it was, tens of thousands of dollars. And I just fell on the floor crying. And, and so I tried to put that aside and I said, what do I have here? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm a mom, you know, I, and I, you know, and I have, can pull from some of this other stuff that I learned in, in, in Ducati and in the Olympics. And, but I stopped and just thought, what do I have? What I have is, is that I'm noticing that when I tell people about Mila in person, friends, strangers, family, people are really drawn to Mila. Um, she was a child that people were drawn to since she was born. She had this pretty incredible energy about her. I don't know how to describe it, um, but people were very drawn to her. And I was very vulnerable. I wanted to crawl in my closet, and I did every single day, and I cried a lot. 
Um, but when I came out, I decided to be really open because it was too painful for me to just keep it inside. And so when I started speaking, I noticed that people reacted really well. And, and I, I learned that there was a little bit of hope, just a tiny glimmer of hope with gene replacement therapy at the time. You know, ASO was not uh, on my mind then really because I didn't know too much about it. Um, but I started noticing a trend when I spoke with other parents of rare disease children, many of which whose children had passed away and they had fought for them, that there was this kind of wave that was rising in, in genetics. And there was this, maybe we can stop some of these diseases. It was such a small glimmer of hope. But for me, I'm a really positive person. And I just thought, if there's a glimmer of hope, like I've got to go after it. So when I would speak with people... I would, they would feel the pain and the weight and the sadness and just, I can't believe that my daughter or my niece or my granddaughter could ever go through that. And they felt devastated hearing Mila's story. But then there was this glimmer of hope, which was real. And that made them really excited, you know? And so people were listening. And so I thought, well, you know what? All I can do, I don't want to let people into my house and into my life, but all I can do is I can tell the story that's real and just tell them what's happening in my, in my life. And I can open the door and let the media in of which came in numerous times and interviewed me in times when I was crying the minute before and had to wipe my face clean before like the TV people came in with all their makeup on. And I was just, you know, red faced and miserable and not wanting to talk to them at all. Um, and, and then, you know, people wanted to do um, interviews on radio and they wanted to write articles and, other people wanted their kids wanted to do a fundraiser at their school or or a, um, a little concert or a lemonade stand, and I just realized, you know what? The only power that I have here to move any mountains and try to make anything happen for Mila is if I tell her story. And so I just started telling it everywhere and anywhere to the person on the airplane next to me, speaking in front of hundreds of people at a few events that we organized a lot on social media, which I had previously tried to get off of social media prior to that. Um, and luckily I didn't. Um, I really appreciated how many people followed Mila's story. And I started a GoFundMe page and I started updating it on a regular, perhaps too regular basis. It probably overwhelmed some people, but just really like, here's Mila and this is our life and just the good and the bad and the sadness and the hope um, and interjected um, some of the excitement around the science, but in a digestible way, because I was not a scientist, so I could not explain it in detail. And people started kind of figuring out like, oh, this is kind of like Batten disease. I would describe it like um, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and epilepsy and blindness combined. And so people could relate to one of those and be like, oh, wow, you might be able to, there's a team of scientists that might be able to stop that. And that hope, which was real, because there were successes happening in other diseases, um, made people want to read what no one wants to read, which is a story of a dying child. But it made them, drew them in, and they saw that hope and that fight, and they wanted to be part of it. That's what it felt like from my point of view. And at what point did it become clear that you and Tim were going to move forward with creating Mielison? Like, what was the moment where, from your perspective, you know, this is going to happen, and we're, Tim and I are going to do this together? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, over the course of that year, I continued working on the gene replacement therapy and Tim kept me updated as much as he possibly could during that year. And then come, you know, we had met in January of 2017. By October, 
2017, I remember being on a call with him and he said, you know, it's probably time for you to come to Boston. And I just thought, oh my gosh, is this real now? Um, and I knew that there was many hurdles that we had faced in, in this leading up to the trial, um, up to Mielsen. And, and I wasn't sure that, to be honest, it was going to happen, but I was working as hard as I could to be supporting both the gene replacement therapy and the ASO in terms of funding it and staying involved, trying to help come up with uh, my perspective when we hit forks in the road, which was, I think, really important as I was watching Mila decline very quickly. Um, and in October, we uh, needed to get to Boston. We, we got there thanks to an amazing person who I don't even know who heard Mila's story and offered his share of a private jet. People were getting sick. It was the flu. It may sound like a trivial thing, but like after everything we had done, I could not risk Mila getting the flu. Um, children that have Batten or any of these neurodegenerative conditions can really kind of fall off a cliff when they get really sick. And so I was trying to get her to Boston from Colorado without getting sick. And this just incredibly nice couple put us in touch with their private jet share and got us there safely without any flu um, and, and ended up getting to Boston Children's and not really realizing that like this was kind of a checkpoint along the way, you know, and I, I just wanted them to meet Mila. Um, and I was so excited that it was turning into something real. And at that point, we met with Boston Children's and, and there were some assessments done. And um, I, we, we met with the ethics committee. And I didn't, I didn't realize until later that they were trying to see, like, what point is Mila right now? And also you as a family, do you understand that this has never been done before and that, you know, what you're embarking on? Um, and the good news is, is that Mila was laughing and smiling and she was able to do a number of things in the assessments that really showed that she was still absolutely worth fighting for and, and in the right place. And that uh, ethics committee, I believe, understood that um, Mila's dad and I really understood a lot, quite a lot. And we understood this had never been done. We understood that there were risks. Uh, but for me, I, today, I say that to me, it was the risk of treating Mila versus the risk of not treating Mila. The risk of, tr uh, of not treating Mila was very black and white. It didn't matter to me whether she lost her final words at six and a half or seven and a half or eight. Um, it didn't matter to me whether she lost her... Her, her ability to walk at five, six, or seven. Like it was going to happen in a very small window of time and we knew exactly what it was going to look like. And it was terrible. Um, and the risk of treating her is this is something unknown. I had learned that there had been decades of work done on animals um, in terms of safety and this was not uh, voodoo science, <laughs> you know? And so it seemed to me, and then Spinraza, of course, was an enormous success SMA, which Spinraza targets, is obviously not the same as Batten disease, but there were a number of similarities. And it felt to me like this is legit science that offers hope. And at that point in time in October, when we went to Boston, and Anthony, you asked the question of when it pivoted, is not only had the team gotten to know Mila and we actually flew to Boston, but in that same meeting, Dr. Yu said, hey, we'd love to invite you to this meeting to show you what we found in her cells when we put Milicin on Mila's cells in the lab. And it's pretty amazing. You know, what we found that we had two other independent labs um, verify this. And so when we saw that her cells were being kind of returned to, to health, um, that was, I mean, it blew us away. <laughs> you know, and that's when I thought, wow, this actually really might happen. And in fact, in that same trip, I remember being to the point where I, could, I couldn't barely breathe, taking care of Mila, taking care of my little son, trying to raise money and awareness and working with scientists for two different treatments. At that point, 
I kind of handed over most of the reins for the gene replacement therapy that we had started um, for Batten CLN7. I handed it over to another foundation together with um, UT Southwestern who was working on this. And I just, I couldn't do them anymore together. And I really shifted my focus 100% to how can we get this ASO to Mila like very quickly because she does not have a lot of time left. And so let's fast forward to the moment where she gets dosed and then next few months afterwards, um, how did things go? So in, in January of 2018, this is now one year after meeting Dr. Yu and about a year after Mila was diagnosed, Dr. Yu said, well, you know, I think it's time to come to Boston. We don't have FDA approval yet. We hope it's happening any day. We have all the data that we need. We've submitted everything and we got on a plane and got there in, in January of 2018 locked ourselves down in a house because the flu was raging even more at that point. Prior to knowing anything about COVID and masks, we started wearing masks when we went to the grocery store, doing anything that we could to protect Mila and really not letting anyone go in large crowds. Um, it was down to the, the minute in terms of how urgent it was for Mila. Um, at the end of November, just about a month and a half prior to that, Mila had gone off kind of a cliff typical of Batten disease where she had not really had any seizures that were visible. There were some subclinical seizures. Um, and suddenly at the end of November, she was having more and more and more and more seizures. And by the time we got to Boston, they were up to 30 a day. Um, and they were just really just destructive. You know, there she was, her arms and legs wouldn't stop moving and they would smash into whatever was near her. She had more bruises on her. Um, she was getting weaker. Her legs were buckling. Um, when she would walk, push her little stroller outside, something I did every day with her to keep her strong and everything just was getting harder. She wasn't smiling, um, and laughing as much as before. And, um, you know, we got to January and I was just desperate and just praying every day that like this approval would come from the FDA. And once we moved there, within a few days of being there, I remember Dr. Yu slid a little envelope underneath our door of our rental house. And I opened it up and, you know, it was a copy of the letter from the FDA that gave the green light to go ahead. And a few days later, uh, Mila was going to receive Milicin. I didn't know it was called Milicin at that time. I was with Dr. Yu walking through the back, you know, hallways of Boston Children's Hospital. And and he just said, you know, anyway, and then Mila said, I said, what? <laughs> what did you say? He said, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Yeah, we named, we named the drug Mila And I think then it really hit me. It's just symbolic. Like, this was a treatment for my daughter, but it was, we never set out for it to be this pioneer in pioneering the first ever drug, you know, tailored to one person. It just, it kind of just happened. And, and no other case has been found you know, since where uh, another child shares the same very unusual mutation that I passed down to her. And so it really hit me then, wow, this is really crazy. And I remember asking Dr. Yu, like, has this, has this been done before? You know? And he's like, no, I mean, it's kind of this crazy notion, but, but why not? Because her cells are responding to this and, and Mila is in need of something and there is no other treatment, you know, and it's looking really promising and safe. Um, and so that was just days before. And then leading up, I, I went on a run the night before. Uh, it was probably like, you know, minus 10 balmy day in the winter of Boston. And I, I ran on a run and I remember thinking, you know, I, I hope that this either works 
or that like Mila dies on the spot. And it sounds so drastic to say that, but I've had other parents of rare disease tell me the same thing going into treatments is, is this was such an incredible opportunity that, you know, hardly anyone gets. And, and I just, I really hope it works, but either way, I started feeling that this was going to, um, that was kind of the beginning of when I feel like, you know what, I think this is going to help other people. And, and I had so many other families reach out to me in such desperation, long emails describing their child's terrible, horrendous diseases and how much they were impacted by that, their entire extended family and all of their friends at their little child's school and their neighbors and their communities. And I thought, if there's something that I can do and something about Mila's energy and her radiance and how many people have followed her story and the thousands of people that have donated money and the, and the hundreds, if not thousands of people within science that really rallied around Dr. Yu to make this happen, it has to be for something bigger than her. And so I, I felt this enormous hope for Mila the night before and also for just the entire rare disease field community. Um, and the next day, Mila received Milosin. I spent a few hours walking down the hallways of Boston Children's Hospital kind of digesting all of that. I had not had a moment to digest this. I had no idea what was happening. I, my head was down and I was just trying to raise the money and learn and make the right decisions around Mila. I was also trying to help with this gene replacement therapy. There was just so much going on. I was trying to be a mom to Aslan, who was just two, who didn't understand why we were moving to Boston. Um, and uh, juggling a little bit too much, not really sleeping much. And when I was walking through those back hallways during, you know, the first Milosin that was being uh, administered to Mila, um, it really hit me. Like, I cannot believe, I remember thinking, how is there a drug being injected into Mila's cerebrospinal fluid that actually is like covering up or masking this horrible little mutation <laughs> that is killing my daughter? And robbing her of every ability. And she was completely normal and outgoing and healthy before. It was just, it blew my mind. I could barely wrap my head around it. So, you know, at that point, then we ended up staying. We thought we were going to be in Boston for, you know, a month. Instead, we were there for five months. And we lived in Boston for the first half of the year and enrolled my little son eventually in a tiny little preschool and like went to the grocery store and lived a life that seemingly was normal on the outside, except for that we were spending half of our time in and out of the hospital during the meals and doses. So we heard a bit about the process of, of treatment from, from Dr. Yu. And at, at the beginning, you know, there was initially positive results. The seizures that you mentioned that had uh, begun in earnest lessened and, and her core strength improved. How did the treatment proceed from then? I'm, I'm curious uh, what you saw and felt. So, you know, in that first year, the, the seizures were the very obvious thing, like you mentioned, Alex, and um, they, they really were just so incredibly noticeable and they went down to sometimes zero in a day. Um, and I, I took very religiously took notes on what her seizures were like um, for a number of years. And uh, they got to the point where they were just barely noticeable at all. That made her quality of life significantly better. We didn't have to worry about holding her down many times a day while her arms and legs thrashed and wondering what that felt like for her on the inside because she was no longer able to talk. So I wasn't able to understand if she felt like there was lightning going through her or confusion or little 
temporary memory loss. You know, I didn't know what that did to her. And we weren't seeing that anymore. Um, uh, she did have increased tone, which was great. So she could sit up cross-legged on the floor across from her brother and she could hold a little toy um, instead of falling over. Um, when she was walking, she would walk and I would hold her from behind. You know, when I took Mila out for a long time, for years, where she would hold onto her stroller and take these steps that were so hard for her, you know, and I was trying to keep up her, her walking and her strength. And I noticed her being able to lift her feet more. Uh, they weren't dragging. The toes of her shoes weren't ripped apart in shreds from dragging across the cement outside. Um, she was able to walk up the stairs occasionally, which was just amazing, like with alternating feet, I was holding her fully from behind. So she needed full support, but she couldn't lift her feet up to get up the stairs. And suddenly she was able to do it. Not all the time, but, um, it happened a number of times. Um, you know, her smiling and laughing, it's a very subtle thing, but as a mom, you obviously notice that. And, um, there were times leading up to Mielsen, especially in the last month, um, leading up where she just was really, she was just really kind of out of it. You know, she wouldn't respond to the like hilarious line in the book that she always had. And now I was reading her that line and not every single, nothing, nothing was a hundred percent consistent, but there was just many more times where I would, you know, sneeze. And she thought it was hilarious, like in the middle of a, of a book, you know, about Santa Claus and she would start laughing hysterically, you know? And so like those little things for me were probably the most important, um, I saw my like hilarious outgoing, you know, daughter again. Um, she had had a G tube put in a few months before Melison, and I did that in in many ways, not fully preemptively. She did need one, but I did it a little preemptively because I was trying to keep her as strong as possible. And you know, we live in Colorado; it's super dry, and she wasn't able to drink water as well. Um, and so after you know, she started receiving most of her nutrition, so her food by G tube leading up to Melison. And afterwards, she started eating my mouth again, pureed foods, spooned. I would spoon them into her mouth. Um, but she kept that up for a number of years, you know, before having to go back to using G-Tube. That first year was really amazing. I, I, I don't know what my expectations were. I think they were to stop everything. I did not expect to see improvements. The improvements were pretty amazing um, for everyone. Uh, I remember seeing the cover of a, a magazine, I think, or was the, it was a, an article that had just come out. And I remember it talking about Mila and I thought I was reading a headline about some other family, you know, and it was like, you know, we might've been able to stop a degenerative disease in this child. And I thought, oh my God, that's so exciting and realized, you know, digested it and realized it was my own daughter. And all of that fight <laughs> for one year had actually turned into something concrete and real that looked scientifically like promising and I was seeing it in real life. So it was very surreal year for me. I thought, wow, Mila might be the first child to survive Batten disease. And, and then the second year I could tell, I can always tell how I feel inside. And I felt a little bit more sad, a little bit more anxious, a little bit more like, wait a minute, is, is this really stopping it? And I would have to look back a year prior and I could see that things were slowly getting worse, but very slowly. But that very slowly was very concerning to me because I was, I wanted to go and speak with people about all of the interesting, cool things that are happening about working around, you know, a destroyed retina like Mila's. 
Uh, Vision was never uh, a goal to restore with Mielsen, um, as it was not being administered intraocularly, and Miel had already lost her vision completely. But, you know, people, doctors and scientists had reached out to me because of Miel's story and telling me these just really cool innovations around potentially working around a destroyed retina. And I just remember telling myself, I wanted so desperately to go there and look into that. But I told myself, no, you have to make sure you can stop this disease before you can go there. And I just, that first year gave me that hope. And then the second year, I was very hesitant, you know, and I thought, you know what, maybe this isn't fully stopped. Um, In the third year, uh, which was last year, I could see that it was, her disease was definitely progressing. And while it was extremely slowed, she was not very medical. She really didn't have that many seizures. And she was on one seizure medication last summer, by last summer, and she was only on 0.5 ml of the seizure medication, whereas most children are on, you know, with Batner and many more. Um, we were not in and out of the hospital. We were not having shaking vests. She was not choking. You know, things were were okay, but they were getting worse. And it was slow, and I had drawn the line in the sand um, a few years earlier that I wanted to make sure that my super outgoing daughter was at least able to like interact with life and was able to um, feel happiness, you know. And I could see this last summer with COVID, you know, we're all had a very introspective life over the last year, being home all the time, and it just really forced me to really think a lot about where she was at. Um, she had some. A problem with her hip, which is typical, I did not know this, but of some degenerative diseases, and her hip started coming out of the socket. And I was faced with uh, very difficult decisions around having a massive operation of breaking bones on Mila or giving her morphine to, you know, keep her pain under control. And so I was faced with a lot in the last year of her quality of life, even though Mila since seemed to be greatly keeping her seizures under control and making our life significantly better quality of life with less drama, you know. How did you decide to end the treatment? We did not end the treatment, actually, um, in the sense that uh, Mila last received the treatment in January of this year. Um, But I had a very incredibly difficult last year thinking about what was best for my daughter. And, you know, having been in the spotlight and being such a fighter for Mila's life, it felt very uh, difficult for me to switch and really fight for what I thought was best for her. And if she had a voice, which she didn't, you know, what she would want. Um, In that summer, I had a number of people who were close to me say, you know, Julia, I wish everyone in the world could see what was behind closed doors in your home. Um, because when I would get on calls, people would say, how's Mila? You know, I didn't know how to answer that. Like she's doing a lot better than what she should be, but she's kind of in this limbo. And I've heard this from other families who have had children that have undergone these first gene replacement therapies or enzyme replacement therapies or, you know, ASOs is like, it's early. (laughs) It's so exciting, but it's early days. And and children like Mila had, you know, Mila lost a lot going into her, into Milison. And so I just was uh, faced with, how do I explain this to the world who's watching Mila and, and seeing all her great moments? I was capturing all of her great moments on social media in that last year, but there were fewer and fewer of them. 
And so I, I started a uh, photo journal called This Is Today, which if anyone's interested is this-is-today.com. And it was really mostly for my own healing, but it was also there because I didn't know how to continue answering that question to everyone on calls as I was running this rare disease foundation. I was on the call with scientists and doctors and people you know, been following the story. And I didn't know how to answer that question. So I really, I led a photographer into my home, a friend of mine who came in numerous times a week unannounced. And she took black and white kind of photojournalism style photos. And the purpose of it was partly, like I said, I needed people to see what was Mila's life was really like. So I didn't have to answer that question. And along the way, it hit me that as I started posting these photos, I had so many other families reach out to me. It made me realize that the photos I was showing was really not just about Mila. It wasn't about my life. It wasn't about Batten disease. It was about the impact, you know, the physical and emotional impact that rare disease has on, especially on families with children that have rare disease, because it's not just one person. It's their siblings, their parents, their grandparents, their schools. I mean, I can't tell you how many people just in Boulder, Colorado alone, are so impacted by Mila's story. You know, their children are trying to figure out what death is now. You know, so many children in this community. And, and um, I felt like posting these photojournalism photos that showed our life of me holding Mila, her head limp with a back brace on, of me picking her up and carrying her into the car to get to Milison, of her little brother playing by himself in the corner without me. Um, these were photos that I think added weight to what the industry needs to see because I think biotechs and academics um, do a great job at trying to meet other families. And they meet them in the context of like, come in my office, here's my kid in a wheelchair. And then they see presentations and the presentation says, Six, you know, six zero M. Sixty million children are affected by, you know, fatal and life threatening and devastating diseases, genetic diseases. Um, but that just doesn't convey how incredibly painful and heavy every minute of every day is. Like I thought I was going to get cancer by the end of last year. I was so exhausted from taking care of Mila and my son and trying to like fight for her treatment and and make big decisions about her life. I wanted people to see that, and it really helped me to hear other families across many other diseases and other cultures and other countries um, say, that's my life. Thank you for capturing that and sharing that. And so I, I lived six months of sharing these photos, which did help me. They helped me a lot personally. And then they also helped, I think they've helped the field understand that while I was fighting for Mila, now you can see where she's at. She's in this limbo. And, and, and now this is why I'm having to make, I feel as a mother of Mila, that I have to make the best decisions for her of what she would want. And it is the most difficult thing I could ever imagine a parent having to do, um, especially because I had been fighting for Mila's life for so long. And I had to shift and think, I'm still fighting for my daughter, just in a different way. You know, um, Julia, the story of Mila is both one of tragedy, but it's also one of hope where you and Tim created an entirely new treatment paradigm that maybe could have a real impact on children going forward. What are the things 
that you most want to see happen next? Yeah, thank you, Anthony. And you know that I appreciate your words because they give a lot of meaning to Mila's life and they give a lot of meaning to my life. Um, and it brings me incredible happiness to see that Mila's story um, is making a big impact. Uh, it's not just for me, but Dr. Yu and I worked together with so many people, like I mentioned before. Milosin was possible because of thousands and thousands of people who I don't even know who donated a dollar or $20 or $100. Um, they, it required many scientists, many researchers, many physicians, many biotechs to share information and to really work with Dr. Yu, who just did such an amazing job at not asking favors. I don't know if we would have ever gotten there if he just did that. But he really kind of treated Mila and Mila sent like a baby that he kind of shared with everyone and said, look, can you help me take care of this baby? I mean, it's a strange analogy, but it felt like people really wanted to help Mila and then they also saw, you know, this might be something that actually, this might be where all the stars align. And this might be what actually breaks the ice and allows for what seemed like a crazy notion that maybe could happen in 10 years, like might happen now. Um, this idea of a drug personalized, you know, or customized for one person. And so for me, I see that there are potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children who just with ASOs alone could potentially benefit from a treatment like Mielicin. And so for me, I hope that what we see is not just that a few Mielicin's versions of Mielicin trickle through the system in academics where there happens to be stars aligning and there happens to be money, you know, it happens to all work out perfectly and those kids get treated, that would be wonderful. But that is not enough because rare disease in children, you know, rare genetic disease is drastic. It is unbelievably drastic. And when I read about COVID and I read about, you know, oncology, my mother has stage four non-smoker lung, lung cancer. So I spent a lot of my time, unfortunately, reading about that as well. I, I go back and look at the HIV AIDS era where uh, drug development, you know, changed as well. And I look at all of these periods and I look at all of these um, groups of diseases. And I think rare genetic disease in children is just unbelievably devastating. And right now we're going gene by gene, which is awesome. And that's great because at least there's something going on and it offers enormous hope. But we need to have a platform approach that cuts across diseases that makes an enormous impact, not just a few that trickle through each year. And to do that, I think we all need to think outside the box. And I think we are starting to, and that's really exciting. But we need to come up with a scalable, sustainable model for individualized genetic treatments. Right now, they happen to be ASOs. They will be CRISPR and others in the future. And, and coming up with that path and making it really smooth and clear and easy and not climbing Mount Everest like Dr. You and I had to do without maps and oxygen and trailheads, you know, or any path whatsoever, it can't be like that anymore. It's got to be more climbable. There has to be a path. And that requires a very clear regulatory path, which good news is, is the FDA is doing a great job at issuing guidances, which I think are getting us going in the right direction. It requires an innovative business model. There has to be a business model. This can't fall on academics and nonprofits 
it can, but it will happen like a few year of the people that are lucky enough to make that happen. It needs to be a model where it gets faster and cheaper and better. Otherwise, it's never going to be truly impactful. And there has to be an insurance model. There has to be, or a payer model, including, you know, even Medicaid waivers. And, you know, there, there has to be a payer model that allows for this to be, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, takes a few months, it's covered by insurance. And in academic medical centers around the country and world, there is a, a place to go from diagnosis to treatment. You know, that's how, that's my dream. And I think it is feasible but it's going to require everyone to think outside the box and allow for things to happen in the rare disease space that perhaps don't normally happen in pharma, cross-referencing data. I don't want to pretend that I am an expert in this, but there needs to be exceptions made and things done to allow this to really scale because it can, and it can make a serious impact. And I hope it does. You know, Julia, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. You know, as I, I listen to you, I'm reminded of an earlier generation of rare disease um, advocacy and biotech um, development around Genzyme and Gaucher's disease, which created a whole new paradigm with it at the time. It was unheard of that we would even try and make drugs for rare diseases, but a combination of the Orphan Drug Act and, and new business models and new technology developments created something really amazing that has impacted, you know, many, many individuals. And I think all of us believe that what you and Tim are doing could be the start of, of yet another new era. And, you know, words can't express how much we appreciate you coming and telling this story today. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you, Alex, so much. And I really appreciate you inviting me on. Um, it's only been three months since Mila died. And it's um, really helpful for me to be able to tell the story and most importantly, to talk about how, you know, Mila and I, and Dr. Yu, you know, we're all kind of a team. And um, I still feel Mila's presence and know that, you know, Mila's purpose somehow in this life, which took me a long time to actually mean what I'm saying, but, you know, really she had a really strong purpose and that it feels pretty nice to know that um, we're all here today talking about this um, and things are actually changing and they're moving towards, you know, Mila, uh, to something much bigger. So thank you for, for inviting me and having me speak about this. Thank you for sharing your story. Thanks, you guys. Huge thanks to Julia Vitarello. Now, usually at this point, we take time to have a technical discussion between Anthony and myself about what we've just heard, but Julia and Mila's story and Tim's a couple of weeks ago makes me want to reflect with you, Anthony, not necessarily just on this show, which was impactful and, and meaningful, but on what we've learned through listening to and speaking with all of our guests this season. And what I'm realizing, reflecting on all of the people that we've spoken with, is all of these people are throwing their lives and their hearts and their, their intellect and all of this effort into one thing, 
to serve the sick. Yeah, you know, Alex, this season has really been, for me, very meaningful, humbling, and inspiring. In some ways, especially just given the interview with Julia and the one with Tim before it and the story of Mila, um, I'm in some ways reminded a little bit of one of my favorite songs when I was growing up, which is the song from Paul Simon uh, called The Boy in the Bubble. And the chorus of the song is, these are the days of miracle and wonder, and this is a long distance call. And, you know, the examples that he points to that were tremendous advances in an earlier era of medicine and technology, like being able to have a, a child without an immune system live inside of a bubble, or the idea of being able to make a long distance call, now seem somewhat quaint by comparison to where we are today. And so too, if you imagine where we sit now and where we'll be within 20 years, I think the same can be said that many of the topics that seem so inspiring that we cover today will be eclipsed by what comes after it. One of the places where I, I really uh, experienced this the most uh, was actually David Altshuler's interview. As I mentioned uh, in that interview, I started med school in 2001, uh, which was the year that the first draft of the Human Genome Project had uh, was just released. And hearing David talk about the arc of his career, where he was part of that initial wave of sequencing the human genome, and then constructing a reference map of human genetic variation, and then going on to use that to construct the first generation of genome-wide association studies, and then finding what's now almost 100,000 variants that are reliably associated with human diseases because of that work. It's somewhat humbling to think that we're in this period um, where things like the genetic basis of essentially all diseases are, are well underway. And of course, we're not yet at a stage where we can use this insights to reliably produce new therapies and actually help people. But I can't help but feel how optimistic we should all be about that future coming in the not so distant future. What do you think, Alex? What I'm reminded of our conversation with Aviv and her telling of a little bit of the history of what, what isn't a treatment yet, but what is, I guess, a, a view into how our bodies are structured, which is the history of single cell sequencing. And I think it mirrors a little bit of what you're saying, which is the starting point of discoveries that can save one person's life and then thousands of people's lives and then become so routine as to be mundane, they, they start somewhere. And they start um, barely working. And I thought it was an interesting window into some of these people's lives who, who, had, who had been at the beginning of the birth of an idea that has, has kind of been on a trajectory towards really making humanity better, safer, healthier, happier. Um, so I, I, I felt that, that this, this, this arc, and it, it just... What, what strikes me every time we have conversations with people who've kind of dedicated their lives to healing or to discovery is just how different the beginning can look from the middle of the journey or, you know, further along that what seems impossible or laughable initially can save a life down the road. Uh, that That's just something that always strikes me with this. And I think 
what you're mentioning with David Altshuler's trajectory feels that way too, that the beginning of his career and trajectory and his discoveries, it seemed people were telling him not to do it. And then here we are at the end of that um, with him helming the next generation of discovery um, with some of the technologies that Tim Yu depended upon in order to build Milosen built into Tim Yu's process for building Milosen were some of the discoveries that people thought that, you know, David Altshuler shouldn't work on. So I, I, I just, when we take a 30,000 foot view where we step back, um, it's all very humbling uh, to me to see the bravery and commitment of scientists and doctors and parents really believing in something when that belief isn't always encouraged or that belief isn't always substantiated fully or it's not the right thing to do in quotes, you know, for yourself or for your career or, or whatever it might be, but it ends up being incredible. You know, if you can make one person's life better for a year, you know, that, that's, that can make it all worth it. You and I didn't plan it this way, but I think one of the commonalities amongst all the guests we've had this season is that they were all willing to defy convention. Um, you think about early on in the show, you know, Anne Carpenter telling the story of going after schizophrenia with fibroblasts. Uh, Rory Collins, who has certainly defied convention and been willing to go his own way throughout his career. You think about Carolyn Uhler and Jennifer Liskarten again, I think both were willing to kind of take a different tack than the the new, usual way. And then, of course, Amy Abernethy is someone who is always breaking with convention and doing things different. Uh, again, I, I don't think you and I uh, planned it this way, but it was striking to me how that was such a commonality among our guests this season. Completely, and not just within one domain either, right? So there's so many areas for innovation. There's so many areas that you have to play in and everything has to kind of be in the right position in order to you know, move a drug forward or come out with a new treatment or discovery. I mean, business and science and regulation. I mean, there's many different avenues of society that all participate and collaborate to make amazing things possible. And I think Amy Abernathy was a great example of that. Someone who's literally moved her career from the clinic to business, to regulation, then to, you know, we're all waiting to see what she'll do next, but she's done kind of whatever it takes to move medicine forward or to move treatments forward as she says, to treat the patient in front of her, to make her life better, that the patient's life better. Yeah. And, you know, another person in that same vein is is Krishna, our good friend and colleague, who, again, was someone who reinvented himself several times during his career, broke with convention. And actually, one of the things that I was really reminded of by his interview and Amy's both is that in some ways, medical advance ends up being kind of a three-legged stool between you know, scientific advances, uh, changes in regulation and operations, and then also being able to construct business models that can make it sustainable and, and carry forward. Um, and again, I think the interplay between these three legs of the stool uh, has very much been a theme of this season. I think it's exciting. I, I guess if you were to choose any time in history to be born, that would be the most exciting where you'd have the most hope for humanity, I think the answer would be today. And that wasn't always true throughout human history. There were long stretches of time when being born today was, you know, not that great. 
Um, but we seem to be, I guess we have an abundance of hope, or at least, you know, I'm inspired and I'm given hope by all the guests that we've, we've talked to. I think that's, that's an incredible privilege that we shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore and that we, we should, I feel very grateful, um, at least in listening to these conversations to be able to feel that and believe that. I totally agree. There's so much that's happening today. Um, that gives us hope. And I think Tim Yu's story, I think Julia's story, Mila's story, ultimately, it's her story, is perfectly emblematic of that. But what more should we be doing? What kinds of doctors and computer scientists and clinicians and regulators are just beginning to emerge today? Because we've, we've spoken to people who are late career, Let's be frank about it. We've only spoken to people who have already done something that they can be proud of for the rest of their lives and aren't just out of grad school, aren't just out of medical school. What can we say to them? What should we hope for from them? How should we hope, you know, a, a 14 or 18 or 22 year old person, how should we hope for them to surpass us? You know, how should the world be different going on into the future? So, you know, here, um, a couple thoughts on this. Um, and actually, I, I don't know why. Oh, actually, I do know why. Uh, I, my mind immediately goes to many quotes from David Altshuler. Uh, and that's because in my life, he was probably the single most important mentor and sponsor I had. And first, one of the things that he said to me, um, well, there was a period of my life where I would go out to his house once a month um, and spend the time in the afternoon talking about data science and medicine. And at some point I said, you know, David, you're giving me all this time and I really appreciate it, but what's in it for you? Um, I just, I don't quite understand. And I remember him saying to me, are you kidding? When I look at my calendar every day, uh, most of it is bureaucracy and then the rest of it is pain and suffering. And then every so often there's this window of opportunity when a young person comes to me and all they want is to talk about ideas and to get advice. He's like, you know, that is by far the most fun meeting I have every day. Those are the ones that I wake up and look forward to and that I don't try to move. <laughs> Those are the ones that I, I always want to make sure stay on the calendar. So one of the things that um, as I think about kind of talking to the next generation is actually not to underestimate the degree to which people actually are invested in your success and want you to go on and change the world because almost anybody who was successful today had one or more people like that in their lives. But then specifically, as we talk about the domain that we've been focusing on here at the interface between kind of the life sciences and the data sciences and theory and practice, I'm reminded of another quote by David Altshuler, which is, uh, and this was kind of, he said this around 2005, um, the future belongs to computationally enabled biologists. And I always like that because it's very tempting to say the future belongs to computational biologists, but actually that's not what you need. You need computationally enabled biologists who can pull everything together and be able to understand what are the real problems to solve and then assemble the teams and tools to go after them. There's a, a generation that's I'm at the very tail end but um, you might call them digital natives. You know, you might say, hey, are you going to use a, you know, when you grow up, are you going to be using computers? And that's like asking a fish about water. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? Am I going to be using computers? Of course. Of course, I'm going to be thinking about understanding 
all the patterns in front of me with all the tools that I have available. And I think that that's, that's going to be something special, you know, for something that took a little bit of strain, I think for the generation of scientists that we interviewed. And uh, I think Anthony, you and I might count ourselves as kind of a generation behind them or computer using computers was a little bit easier or uh, taking big daring bets about scale and scope that were enabled by uh, programs and computers. Uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm so hopeful that the generation that's being trained now will think of us as old geezers who are making much ado about nothing. <laughs> it's like, well, of course that's what you do. Of course that's how you do science is you, you know, don't count on your fingers. Uh, you count with the computer. You, you augment yourself. You know, the computer, as Steve Jobs used to say, is a, a bicycle for the mind. And I'm hoping the next generation is able to travel much further, more easily uh, than, than we've been able to. I hope what they do makes us look like, you know, cave people. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that's amazing is when you think about when you and I started entering into biology, uh, at least for me, it was right around 2000. And at that point, Almost all the data that the typical biologist needed would fit in a laboratory notebook. Mm -hmm. And now you're at this moment in time where a single lab can generate petabytes of data. And with that comes a whole new world of opportunity before us. So Alex, it's been such a pleasure to do season two with you, my friend. I'm looking forward to doing season three and having a new set of guests on that season where we'll continue to explore these topics at the intersection of the life sciences and data sciences and how they can be marshaled to improve the human condition. Anthony, it's been a privilege to have these conversations with you, with all of our friends and with our colleagues, and I'm really looking forward to what's next. This special episode is our last for a while. Thank you for listening, and as ever, if you've got any suggestions for guests or topics that you'd like us to cover in our next season, please get in touch with us at theoryandpractice at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wolchko. And this is Theory and Practice. Goodbye for now. <laughs>